Evening's reading is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no, one, no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get into Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take up your mat, and walk. But I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. My job this evening is to introduce this topic of show me or experience me. I'm going to be focusing very much on show me. There are these four or five different mission styles that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. The four or five different ways which naturally we prefer to share our faith by. So some of us might be a bit like me, more convince me. Or maybe you might be a bit more sort of show me or experience or tell me. We all have different ways because we're all different. We're all different personalities, we're made differently, and we prefer to do things different ways. There's a famous story um, about a, a Romanian church leader called Richard Vermbrandt. And Richard Vermbrandt was a leader, a Baptist uh, pastor um, in the communist regime. And he was in prison for his faith and underwent incredible persecution. But also he used to travel around encouraging different churches and different Christians uh, in communist countries. And at one particular occasion, he found himself in a city standing outside a Baptist church, and he wanted to contact the leader of this particular Baptist church, but he didn't know where this Baptist church leader lived. A little boy walked past, and Richard Verbrandt had a thought, and he asked this kid and said to him, do you know where the man who works, who leads this church, lives? And the little boy said, yes, I'll take you to his house. So they started walking along the road towards the house where the Baptist pastor lived. As they were chatting, Richard Vermbrandt talked about his life and his faith. He, he asked the young boy whether he believed in Jesus. This was right under the, the, the sort of pinnacle, really, of communist rule in Romania. And the little boy stopped and looked at him. And Vermbrandt said that this little boy said one of the most profound statements that he has ever heard in his life. He said, well, I would believe in the big Jesus if the people who went to that building, to that church, behaved like little Jesuses. I believe in the big Jesus if the people who went to that church behaved like little Jesuses. And that boy had encapsulated what it is actually to be a Christian. That for some reason God calls us not only to know him and be loved by him, 
but he involves us in his work. He chooses people like you and people like me to be the way in which he demonstrates his love and his commitment and his reality to other people. The reality is, is, as somebody once said, that you will perhaps be the only Bible that somebody ever reads. Most people in our society now don't have a Bible, never mind reading it. You will be the only Bible that somebody may ever read. You and I are God's visual aid. If people want to know what it's like for God to be involved in someone's life, they will look at people like you and they will look at people like me. And they will think, blimey, if God can work in that person's life, then maybe there's a chance for me. People aren't looking for perfection. They're not looking for people who've got all the answers. They're not looking, as J. John says, for model Christians, because you know what a model is? It's a miniature replica of the real thing. They're not looking for model Christians. They're looking for people who are simply real, people who are authentic, people who are themselves. There's been some research done, and it was said that in the 1950s through to 1980, people were asking the question, is Christianity true? Between 1980 and 2000, more often than not, they were asking the question, is it real? Nowadays, people increasingly ask the question, does it work? What difference does Jesus make to people's lives? What difference does he make to your life and to mine? That passage that Patrick read out for us a few moments ago is perhaps one of the best-known Bible stories of the life of Jesus. It's where uh, Jesus is healing. He goes back to this town called Capernaum, and uh, he's so popular when he goes back there. People hear that he's coming, that they, they, they crowd around this particular house. It's probably uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house where they are, and the place is packed out because people hear that Jesus is there, and they want to be near to Jesus. They know that Jesus um, can heal people. They know that Jesus um, is saying some really insightful, wise things, and they want to listen to Jesus, and they want to hear Jesus, and they want to see Jesus. And these four people hear that Jesus is there, and they bring their friend who's been paralyzed from birth on a mat, on a stretcher, towards the house. When they get near the house, they can't actually get near the house because the crowd is so big. And instead, they, they, they sort of poke their way using the stretcher, I presume. It's a really handy, good thing to, to get through a crowd is to use the edge of a stretcher. And they, they sort of push their way through the, stre- through the crowd to the side of a house where there were stairs going up the side of the houses in Jesus' uh, time. And they, they climb up the, the outside stairs of the house onto a roof. Now, the roof wasn't full of tiles and slates like we have. It was made of, of grass and mud, and it was quite easily to unpick. And that's what these guys start to do. They start to take the roof apart because they realize that's the only way that they can get their paralyzed friend to see Jesus. Now, Jesus was a good speaker. He's perhaps the best speaker there has ever been. 
But I think even Jesus would perhaps have been a bit thrown if, as he looked up, bits of the roof started to fall in. Maybe the people he was speaking to got a bit distracted because bits of the roof, if you would be a bit distracted now, if bits of the roof started to fall in, some of you wrapped with attention that you are, even you would break your eye contact with me and would start to look up and think, Dave, do you realize the roof is caving in? Well, imagine Jesus' surprise as he looks up and sees this hole, and I've always pictured it with four faces peering in. Because Mark, the writer of the gospel, tells us that when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the men who had brought their friend on the, on the mat to Jesus, when he saw their faith as they lower him down into the room where Jesus is speaking, probably just to the men and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus looks at the man and looks at these four faces. And it's an incredibly risky thing that they've done. It's an incredibly exposing thing that they've done. It's actually a very, very vulnerable thing that they've done to this man. But they think it's so important to get this man to Jesus that they take apart Simon Peter's mother-in-law's roof and lower the guy in front of Jesus. And we're told that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we're not told what the reaction of the man was. I've always imagined that the reaction of the man was great. Thanks a bundle. You've exposed me to public humiliation. You have lowered me through this roof. Everybody in the place is looking at me. I came expecting to be healed, and Jesus... This guy has told me that my sins are forgiven. That is about as much use as a chocolate teapot. My sins are forgiven. What does that matter to me? I want to walk. I want to walk out of this place. And who are you to tell me that my sins are forgiven? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jesus had been speaking to they begin to think and talk amongst themselves. Because Jesus is who he is, he realizes, we're told, what was going on in his spirit. Jesus had all the gifts of the spirit as the church, the body of Christ. We have together all the gifts of the spirit. Jesus had all the gifts of the spirit. He had probably what we would call now a word of knowledge, and he knew what they were thinking. He knew that they were starting to say, who is this person who thinks that he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. So if this guy thinks that he can forgive sins, then logically he's thinking that he's God. And they use perhaps for the first time the B word, blasphemy, a word that would end up getting Jesus killed. And then perhaps Jesus sees that there is an opportunity, an opportunity for perhaps the greatest visual aid that there ever has been. And he turns to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he says, I know what you're thinking. You're saying in your heads and in your hearts um, that I can't do this. Well, I want to ask you a question. Which is easier for me to do or to say? To say to this guy who's on the mat, son, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, take up your mat and walk. The implication is obvious. Both are as difficult as each other. 
So if I can do one, then I can do the other. So to prove to you that I can say, son, your sins are forgiven, I'm going to say to this man, take up your mat and walk. And so Jesus turns to the guy and says, son, take up your mat and walk. And to everyone's amazement, probably including the guy on the mat, he gets up and he rolls up the mat and he goes home. I was, we're not told again this, but I wonder if, if Jesus is tempted as the guy gets halfway outside of the room just to stop him and say, can you come back? Let's run through it again. I want to, to see whether you've really understood what's going on here. There's mat, sins. Sins, mat. If I can do one, I can do the other. So to prove to you that I can deal with the sin, I'm going to deal with the mat. And he deals with the mat and thereby proves that he can forgive sin. It's the ultimate show me where Jesus reveals who he is and what he can do. And people all around us want to see in you and me the difference that Jesus makes to our lives. It may be that God might give us a word of knowledge. He might tell you something about somebody which demonstrates to them that God's Spirit is working in you and through you. Those things do happen today. If that happens to you, pray for wisdom to know how to share it. Don't share it immediately, but pray for wisdom to know how to share it. But the way in which Jesus works usually is actually by people seeing the difference that Jesus makes to your life every single day in the way that you think about yourselves, in the way that you think about other people, in the way that you think about money, in the way that you think about the environment, in the way that you think about justice, in the way that you think about friends, particularly in the way that you think about enemies and people that don't like you. People are looking to see the difference that Jesus makes in your life and in my life. James asked me this evening to say, just the difference that Jesus makes to me. And I've been thinking all week, what would I say? What difference does Jesus make to me? And you know, it's one of the, the hardest questions that I've ever been asked on one level. Because on one level, I can point to different things that happened when I came to know Jesus nearly 40 years ago this September. Without anyone saying it to me, I stopped swearing on the cricket field. No one said, now you're a Christian, you can't swear as much. No one said that to me. But starting to play cricket from the age of eight, um, I, I, I was told by the people that taught me to play cricket that I had to swear a lot. So I used to swear a lot on the cricket field. I was nearly sent off once by my own captain for swearing so much at the umpire, and I was the vice captain of that particular cricket team. But when I came back the, the next season, after becoming a Christian the previous September, the people in the changing room, in the teams that I used to play in, noticed that something was different. They said, Dave, you've stopped swearing. What's going on? And I said, well, I've, I've become a Christian. We had some chats about that. That was the biggest difference on one level. But the more I've thought about it, over the last 40 years, my life would be completely different without the person of Jesus. I wouldn't be doing the job that I'm doing without Jesus. I wouldn't have met Kathy and married Kathy without knowing Jesus. 
I wouldn't have the children that I have without knowing Jesus. I would be perhaps angrier. I'd perhaps be swearier. I would still be perhaps as violent on the cricket field. I would perhaps be very, very different, more insecure and even worse with money. I would be a completely different person because of Jesus. But 40 years ago, I said, okay, God, if you're there, let's give it a go. And Jesus came in and changed my life. And he changes my life every single day. I can't actually think of what life would be like without the person of Jesus. And as I've thought about it this week, and as I've watched the news, I thought the world has never been more desperate for the person of Jesus. The society and the culture that we live in has never been more in need of the person of Jesus of his love and his kindness and his gentleness and his graciousness and his forgiveness and above all his hope. And the people around us, whether they know it or not, and many of them don't know it, are desperate, desperate to know Jesus. And they're desperate to see Jesus in you and in me. And the society and the culture and the city and the nation that we live in are not desperate for more church services. And they're not desperate for modern worship songs. And they're not desperate for all the stuff that we might associate with Christianity. They're not even desperate for sermons. What they are desperate for is the difference that Jesus makes. Lived out in people's lives in everyday acts of compassion, love, grace, and kindness. We saw it in the, that demonstration as... Latimer Community Church last, over the last two weeks have just lived out what it is in the shadow of Grenfell Tower to be a Christian community that loves people and accepts people and serves people with very practical demonstrations of God's love and God's acceptance. Not preaching at them, but just showing them the difference that Jesus makes. Latimer Community Church being little Jesuses because they believe in the big Jesus. One person who's lived this out over most of his life is a guy called Jean Vanier. He's an amazing 89-year-old Roman Catholic priest who lives in France. He's become famous now around the world for founding what are known as the L'Arche Communities. There's one here in Edinburgh. And these are communities, houses, homes, made up of people um, some with learning difficulties, some with Down syndrome, some with so-called able-bodied and able-minded people, but where people come together and simply share community and love and live out the practical difference that Jesus makes to their lives. A few weeks ago, some of us uh, were down in London at a conference and saw an interview uh, between Jean Vanier and Nicky Gumbel. And we just want to show you a small clip that just tells something of Jean Vanier's story about what he understands about the difference that Jesus can make. And it says something about what it means to be a human being. What is, what, because your insights into this are extraordinary. What does it mean to be a human being? By a psychiatrist here. One day I asked the psychiatrist, what is it that signifies the maturity of a human being? And he said, tenderness. Hmm. Tenderness is the way to look at people without judging. 
to listen to people without judgment, to touching them uh, without judgment, not holding, because it's never to possess people, but it's helped them to discover you are more beautiful than you dare believe. Mm -hmm. And that for everyone it's here to just help people discover how precious they are as human beings, because the heart of the human being is that deepest part where we need to be loved and to love. But this gets broken as we want more power, we have for the culture and something, that, that we've in some way we no, no longer look at people with tenderness, but we see their negative aspects before the positive aspect. So we are people who judge people, who think these are the good and those are the bad, while in the reality God came in, that God sent his only beloved son into the world, not to judge people, not to condemn, but to reveal to them that they are loved, mm. and they are loved by God. So for us, it's all our, our role is just to create a place where we reveal that we love each other. Mm. That's amazing. I mean, that's the message right at the heart of the New Testament, and it seems to be the, the message right at the heart here, you are loved. Yeah. That is the, the whole of the, that Jesus came to say, I love you. But the difficulty with Jesus is his immense humility. He stands back. Mm. There's that beautiful text of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelations, that I stand and knock at the door. Mm. And the one who hears and opens the door I will enter and I will eat. I will eat with that person, mm. that person will eat with me. Mm. But the thing is that Jesus knocks at the door. We don't want to listen because we're too busy. Mm. It's like the whole in the Gospel of, of Matthew and Luke, when God gives a, a huge meal, uh, a meal of love and sends out invitations, and everybody says, I'm too busy. Mm. I've got a daughter to be married, I've got this, and so So the king is upset. There was this invitation to love. Nobody came. And so St. Luke says, the king sends out the people into the highways and the byways, and bring in the poor, the lame, the disabled, mm. and the blind. Because they're the ones who are crying out for relationship, crying out for love. Somebody is saying to them, I love you and want you. Mm. And that's very key, is this connection, isn't it? There's a connection between people. That, that's at the heart of what your message is. The, the, in the end, life is about relationships, relationship. connectedness. And building community. Because nobody can do anything by themselves. Mm. But together, yeah. we can do beautiful things. And that's what community is about, a beautiful mission and loving each other. And also happiness, the key to happiness. The key to happiness is, you see, as we enter into relation with someone, something happens. Something has changed within me. The one I thought had no value has become my friend. And there's something about a togetherness, a moment of communion, being well together, having fun together. Mm. 
I have been changed because my vision of society has changed. I mean, when I was the Navy, what is important is go up the ladder to do things as superiors want you to do them. But here it's something else. The very heart is to create a place where people are living in communion one with another. And because it's flowing from the cry of the weakness, they draw love out of us. Because if people don't want to love here, go and, you know, go and garden potatoes and do other things. But here, whether people are Christian or not Christian, they're being called to grow in love. Mm.